We have a ton of great football quarterback stuff for you on this podcast. Sports Illustrated, Albert Breer. is going to take us through every detail of the Carson Wentz trade and if the Eagles are still in the mix for a quarterback, especially at the top of the draft. And we'll take a look at the rest of the quarterbacks as well and some life advice at the end. It's Ryan Rosillo podcast presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs and FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like three-minute markets and exclusive live bets like quarter-player props player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming, so please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 and older, 18 plus in D.C., and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries. Changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's. Unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. So we're taping this Thursday night. uh, And that's what I decided to do because I wanted the football stuff out early on a Friday. Because sometimes the Friday release can be a little late. So we want to do that for you guys. And basically, once I saw the lineups being changed again for none of one of these marquee matchups, I was like, all right. So um, that's why there's no Nets Lakers reaction to this right now. The thing that I did want to jump on, I don't, you know, I'm not big on the all-star stuff. Um, you know, snubs, I think it's interesting. I think it's good topical stuff. But every year, it's like, yeah, there's a couple guys. Like, it should be hard to be an all-star. And there's a couple guys that aren't going to be on it. What happens every year now, though, as they dice up the fan, media, and player vote, The player vote now has reached a new record where 310 players got at least one starter vote for the All-Star game. Not just vote, starter. 310 players. So this is a problem. Um, It, it, you know, people look at it as like, oh, you're in the media, so you care. Trust me, the media screws up stuff too, but not like this. Not like this. I mean, I kind of do the segment every year when it happens, but we're at 310 guys. Tyrese Maxey, the Sixers, says, hey, I vote for my teammates. I'm going to vote for myself as well. So he just voted all Sixers. All right, cool. Um, Dario Saric said he votes for all the Croatian guys and fr- guys he's friends with. He's like, but mainly the Croatian guys. And you're like, okay. Um, Damian Lillard, who normally always has this stuff figured out, said, look, I don't make it personal. I vote for who I think should be in it. And John Wall, who there's just a lot of times where I like what John Wall says. I know that may not be popular or maybe surprising at times because people have gone on his case for a few different things. But whenever he talks about the league and some of the stuff, I've always appreciated what he's had to say. And he goes, look, I just go, I write down the guys that go real hard and the guys I have a harder time with. So I, I vote for the guys that make my job more difficult. I did think it was interesting when I looked at some of the player vote and just general pettiness, although Steph's a starter and he got player media and fan vote, uh, number one at the guard position. And the other part of this was when I was looking at some of the Eastern Conference stuff, like Durant and Giannis are one and two in both fan and player rank. The media part had Durant three, probably because he's missing games and had Joel Embiid two. Um, so those three are your front court players. Tatum's out, which seems impossible, but it's not really when you think about it, unless you feel like he should be in there over Durant. But I mean, that's just... That's not reality, and, and Durant's a better player. 
and we can go by season and all that stuff, but there's two guys that jump out in particular. Trey Young, who is not a starter. He was sixth in the fan vote, sixth in the media vote for guards, and 11th by the players. I could see that strictly being about how they have to play him because of the way he's officiated. So the players are upset about it too. And then Gordon Hayward, who was ninth in fan vote, seventh in the media vote, and then 15th. Gordon Hayward, no love. Um, and look, Charlotte's more competitive, so it's not like he's just on this last place team. And I do think that that matters. I think there's guys, if you're on a, one of the worst five teams in the league and you're just putting up huge numbers, I know Bradley Beal ends up becoming a starter. He's leading the league in scoring. I don't have a huge problem with it. Um, but I think for other guys that are kind of borderline in comparison to somebody else, if you're just putting up big numbers, we've talked about it, numbers are easier to come by than ever before. But it is a classic example, once again, of whenever – there was something that has to be decided. Whoever is deciding on it, we immediately have. Right? It's a lot like the college football playoff where you go, oh, well, this is stupid. We didn't like the computer. We didn't like the BCS with the AP poll and then the coaches poll and then the AP part of it pulled out because they didn't think it was right to have the media voting on this. The coaches poll is arguably the worst of any of them. The Harris poll was a combination of a bunch of different people. And then they used the computers where people couldn't quite figure out like, wait, how does this work? Because ranking played into it. So if you ranked higher earlier then the computer still could like you at times when it didn't seem like that made any sense. And the computer could not adjust for things that I think a room of people can adjust for. But now that we have a room of people. So basically what we have here is the all-star vote being once again, another example of whatever current system you will have on deciding something like this. This happens a lot, like no matter what, people are always going to have a problem with it, but your change may not be any better. Now the players should have a vote, I guess. It would seem weird, especially with the way that we care more about these things and we want them to be more equal. And, hey, the media can't just go ahead and decide this. And we've seen the fan vote screw it up all the time. But once again, no one does worse than the NBA players voting on who should start in an all-star game. Albert Breer, Sports Illustrated, one of the best national football guys going. So we're going to do all sorts of fun stuff here. The Wentz deal, though, is official. He's going to the Colts. Third rounder, 2021. Second rounder. 2022 and could be a first rounder basically if it works out. I mean, it's kind of one of those deals where if the Colts make the playoffs, they're more than happy to have moved on from a first rounder. So let's uh, let's start kind of where we were at a couple of weeks ago. We kind of knew that he was going to be dealt. The Bears were in the mix. How did this deal with Indianapolis happen? I think part of it was him willing his way there. Um, I think it was really clear from the beginning that he wanted to be there. Um, and he's got a cr- close relationship with Frank Reich. And it's sort of interesting that the two teams that were there at the end, um, the Bears and the Colts, both had deep institutional knowledge of him. And, and kind of the funny thing about this, Ryan, is when Wentz was going really good in 2016 and 2017, the dynamic on that coaching staff, Frank Reich was the good cop. John D. Filippo, who's in Chicago now, was the bad cop. And I think because of some of that history, like that's why uh, Carson wanted to go there. And so, you know, the Bears really did a lot of homework on, on Wentz. And, um, you know, I, I, my understanding is, you know, Flip uh, made, you know, said like, I can, I, I think we can work with him. Like, I think I can fix him mechanically. Um, Ryan Pace had actually liked him when he came out in 2016, it would have been. So there was a lot going for Carson Wentz in Chicago, but I think because of, the spot they were in because they knew he wanted to go to Indianapolis because of a lot of different things. They never even made an official offer. They just sort of monitored it. And the Colts sort of knew all along, we want to be fair with the Eagles. We want to make sure that 
Um, we're not insulting anybody, but we think we have an idea of what the value is for, for Carson. And, and I'll be honest with you. I think over the last two weeks, the Colts offer didn't change much. Like, I think it sort of was what it was. And Chris Ballard stuck to his guns. And, um, and yeah, that's sort of how we got to where we are, where I think the league sort of let you know what, what they thought of Carson Wentz, where, you know, the, the Eagles had initially asked for the Matthew Stafford return. Um, some teams were turned off by that altogether. You only had a couple teams at the end and, and the Colts stick to their guns and get their man. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. It's one of my favorite things about the league is we'll sit here and be like, you know, the league a lot of times answers the questions that we keep right. asking. And it may not be at the specific answer, but it, it'll tell you the market with a bunch of different players. So let's just stay on the Bears thing real quick and then kind of move on to who mm-hmm. Wentz is because it's turned into, oh, the Bears are never serious. The Bears are never serious. It feels a bit like when Romo got like $17 million from CBS and people said, <laughs> well, ESPN never made an offer and I'll go... So they just magically got to 17 million. So, I mean, there's <laughs> yeah. there's usually some kind of comp. I, as you said, you know, if you were talking to different teams, there are only so many landing spots. If he didn't want to go to the Bears, that may have turned them off. So what should we believe about the Bears? You're saying they had interest, but sometimes it's just semantics about the official nature of what an offer is or isn't. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think that like it, it, it kind of, there was just too much there for them is the way it felt like to me where they were like, all right, like, I don't know if this is really a fit. If he doesn't want to be here, and he already had like, you know, with John T. Filippo again, like, and I think Flip was really good at this when they were together, but he was the bad cop. So if you're like, all right, like he may not want to be here to begin with. And we have the guy here who can coach him hard. And he may need that, but that may also turn him off. Like, and you have a GM and a coach who are going into a situation where, you know, in all likelihood, they're going to be fighting for their jobs this year. I, I can see where you would look at that and you would say, it's not really a fit. Like, unless we can get a really good deal here, it's not really a fit. And so I think, like I said, like it was just sort of more monitoring the situation than anything else on the Bears end. And kind of, yeah, I think that there was a feeling like with the Eagles, the Eagles felt like, oh, like maybe we'll be able to get something out of them at the end. And really it was the Colts offer all along that sort of was the like steady thing there. Let's do two things on Wentz. Uh, let's start with the player and then we'll get to the person. The player. Yeah. I mean, if you read social media right now, he's Nathan Peterman. I mean, he's the worst guy <laughs> to ever play the position. And that like a dirty warden quarterback in Nathan right. Peterman. <laughs> I was trying to think of the best one. And I actually feel bad for Peterman. But once that guy got into a game, it was just on for him. Right. And, and, you know, I'm probably, you know, it's always good to remind all of us that social media isn't a real representation a lot of times. But there are plenty of football voices that I respect, former players, are just so out on him, the player. He was a disaster in 2020. And it was kind of the thing where, like, hey, there's some bad stats, and now this is just off the charts bad. Uh, arguably the worst guy to actually get a chance to play all season. But 17's real. You know, 19 yeah. happened, and he had no one to throw to. So... You can tell me you think he sucks. You can show me every single number. And, and I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but now to act like there's no chance of him ever getting to the point where he's at least, you know, in that 12 to 15th best quarterback range, I don't think that's all that unrealistic. Obviously, it's going to take some work here, but the perception of him, this isn't even his act, the perception of him, I feel, is far too negative now. Yeah. And I think like the concern would be like, is he broken? You know, like RG3. Because I think he's sort of RG3 sort of become the model where it's like, all right, like we can coach him up and we can game it up. And while they're on their rookie contract, we can surround him with great people because we've got all of this extra cap space, you know, and then they grow up and the league catches up to them. And now they're making more money and circumstances change where they have to evolve personally. They've got to play with lesser people around them. 
And I think that there's always this feeling like, is that really revealing who the quarterback is? You know, like when he has to play on a bigger contract, he's got less around him. When scheme-wise, there's less that they can do to fool people. So I think that would be the concern. Um, and look, I think a part of it was the contract that like, you know, the Eagles had less, less depth as a result of him getting paid. And they got old in a lot of spots. Alshon Jeffrey got old. The offensive line, Jason Peters, Jason Kelsey, Brandon Brooks, those guys got old, they got hurt. And so I'm with you and that it's hard. I, I'm with you and that it's wrong to look at him as Nathan Peterman. I, I just think it's hard to get a clean read, period. You know what I mean? Like, I think it's just hard to like look at him and say, like, how do we look at this guy when he was getting hit so quickly? Um, the guys he was throwing to at the end of 19, the guys he I was throwing to like Greg Ward and Greg Ward, I mean, yeah. like Travis Fulgham, like this year, like there's just, there's so many different circumstances at play there where you, you look at it and you're like, can we get a clean read on the guy? Because his circumstances went so sideways. The flip side of the argument there though, Ryan is if you're going to pay a guy that much, you're paying for him to be able to cover up holes. Right. And the best guys can cover up holes. And Carson didn't show an ability to do that the last couple of years. There was stuff coming out where it was like he was just straight up not a great teammate. He was selfish. It certainly looked that way at the yeah. end of this past year. I don't know what he's entitled to. You know, if he had won the Super Bowl with them, we'd probably give him a little bit more leeway, but he doesn't. So that's always going to be held against him, both outside Philadelphia and inside the city. Um, I always feel like, look, if you took any person, asked 53 people that work with you or work with me, yeah. you're going to find a couple people that are like, I don't like that person. And here are some mm -hmm. reasons why. So I don't know that that's always entirely fair. But like, what kind of read do you have on him as as Carson Wentz, the person? Because is he actually just I don't know. Is he a jerk? Is he tough to get along with? Or is he a guy that go ahead? No, I don't think he's a jerk. Like, I, I think it's more like, so he didn't react very well to hard coaching. That was pretty well documented that he needed to be coached a certain way. And that was uh, like Mike Groh, who's the receivers coach in Indianapolis now, like didn't get along great with him. Um, John Filippo, like I said, had been the bad cop before. So um, there was always this feeling like he doesn't react great to hard coaching, which sort of evolved into who does this guy think he is? Like he's carrying himself like he's Tom Brady and he should be, he should be controlling everything. And I don't think it was like intentional by Carson, but he'd been built up by people in that organization to like such a huge degree that you almost not fault him for carrying himself. Like, Hey, I'm the franchise quarterback. In fact, it, like the other day on NFL network, there were, they were showing old Super Bowls, and you know how like at the Super Bowl podium, the, um, you know, how, like the, how they only allow like three or four or five players up there. Right. You yeah. know what I mean? Like the one they put on the field. It's, it caught my eye the other day, like the Eagles Super Bowl was being replayed. Do you know Carson Wentz was one of those five guys? I didn't know that. He was one of the five guys who was standing up on that podium. And you think about that like level of treatment and it's like, okay, he carries himself like that, but you are treating him like that too. Like he was hurt. He didn't play in that game. Like Brandon Graham, who like made the biggest play of the game. He was down below. <laughs> like Carson Wentz is up on the podium. So I think that there's like a little bit of that. And then I think the other part of it too, I'm not sure he related to everybody in the locker room. I don't think he was a jerk, but I don't think he had the ability that some quarterbacks have to relate with every single guy in the locker room. And I think you know where I'm going here, but like your Brady's, your Patrick Mahomes, like they're like the, a lot of the really great ones have an ability to like relate to the guy from LA the same way they can relate relate to like the farm boy from Mississippi. You know what I mean? And I yeah. don't know that Carson really had that. So that was an issue too. 
I'm glad you brought up the podium thing because I hadn't thought about it. I mean, I, I'd forgotten, but I'll never forget Brady after they beat the Rams and he's smacking Bledsoe's shoulder pads being like, yeah. you know, we fucking did it. We did it. We did yeah. it. And Bledsoe's looking back at him being like, yeah, sweet. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> you know, because what are you supposed to do if you're Bledsoe know, in like, that <laughs> spot? Like, you're kind of happy and it's not an anti-Tom thing. You're just like this. Yeah, man. Yeah, I mean, like, awesome. think about that. Like, if you're car, like, I, like, I personally, if that was me, I think I would decline to go up. I mean, I, I don't know go up how there. I react to no that situation. Way. But I don't no think way. I'd want to go up there, right? No, no. Like, and so he's standing up there with like three or four of the most valuable players from that game up. And like, it's just, I think it's a certain level of treatment that he got because he was like the, like when Howie got the, the power back and Doug became the head coach, like Carson was sort of the centerpiece of the whole thing. So even through the injury and everything else, I think psychologically, it was just like, this is our guy and we got to keep showing him support. And I think that that sort of over time began to backfire on them. Something else to add this, and then we'll just move on. But the, mm. some of the worst commentary right now is anything Deshaun Watson related and what it means <laughs> as far as transit. So it's like, so what does Deshaun have to do? And we're like, all right, you have to trend down now for about two years and you have to be dreadful. And right. then you too can be traded for a second and third round or potentially a first. So uh, the Deshaun thing, I think, is very easy to mm -hmm. explain. The Texans are in no hurry to do him any kind of favor because they want to see if they can try to repair it. I don't think it can be repaired. But what's the market like? Or, you know, I think the best way to ask this is what's the sense that you get from teams that are even checking on his availability or what the market would say? I mean, they've got a hard no. Um, yeah. It's don't even ask. You know what I mean? And they've gotten calls, but it's a don't even ask. And um, what's hard about this is that on the other end of it, you have the Texans who've tried to reach out to Deshaun and have basically got ghosted by Deshaun. You know, so it's like when you're trying to forecast like where this is going to go, what's hard about it is the Texans aren't listening to other teams and Deshaun isn't like communicating with the Texans. So what breaks that stalemate? And I, I think the only real deadline we have, especially like you look at the structure of his contract, it sets up this way where he doesn't, you know, really have another dollar coming to him until September. Really the draft is the only like hard deadline we have coming up. You know, I mean like, yeah, maybe some teams come off the board in March that like settle their quarterback plans, you know, like, but I, like if like I don't I, he's such a valuable commodity. I don't think that kills his value. If like three or four teams decide on other quarterbacks in March, that doesn't mean the Texans aren't going to be able to get three or four first round picks for him. You know what I mean? So it's sort of like his value. He's such a good player. His value is going to hold all the way to the draft and the Texans don't have to do anything. And so, you know, and I think it's hard for Nick too because uh, you know, Nick Casario, their new GM, like he, like either your first move is to hold your franchise quarterback. Either your first move is to have like a, almost a hostage situation with your franchise quarterback. And then you're, you're, you're kind of putting that on your first year head coach who hasn't been a head coach before, or you're trading away a top five quarterback at 25 years old, like one or the other. That's your first like major thing as a, as a general manager, tough spot to be in. What's this mean for the Darnold market? I don't know that it means that much for the Darnold market, but I do think I think Sam might be available soon. Um, so the Jets, like the first week after uh, after Stafford was traded, uh, they got calls from four different teams. Um, and then the week after that, they got calls from some more teams. And, and really the response that they've given those teams at this point was, 
our new coaching staff is still going through the roster and still going through the draft quarterbacks, we'll get back to you. And so I think part of it is part of it's strategic and waiting to see what happened with Wentz, I think. But another piece of it is like they want to look at Zach Wilson versus uh, versus Sam Darnold. They want to look at Justin Fields versus Sam Darnold. They want to look at Trey Lance versus Sam Darnold. So then they know, okay, like if we're going to trade Sam Darnold, we know we've either got A, a shot at Deshaun Watson if we want to make that run at it, if he becomes available between now and the end of April, or B, one of those three quarterbacks that, you know, that isn't named Trevor, Trevor Lawrence. So that's sort of where they're at. And I think that the fact that they haven't hung up on teams and said no, the fact that they've sort of let this thing linger tells me they're leaning towards making him available in the next month or so. Now, does that just line up with, with draft projections here that they're going with Zach Wilson? Yes. Yeah, I, I think if, if Watson's not available and if they trade Darnold, I think it means they're sold on one of the quarterbacks. And based on the people that I've talked to, I think Zach Wilson would right now be the most likely one to go second overall. So he would be the one that you would look at if they are going to move off of Darnold. Because at that point, if you are going to move Darnold, at that point, you have to be comfortable with Zach Wilson or one of the other two because there's no guarantee that Deshaun Watson is going to become available between now and then. Yeah, the Wilson rumor, when I first heard it before it was in the mocks in early January, you know, in whatever level of... of you know, I have, I have some NFL people that love the NBA that will, will hit me up and be like, Hey, what's going on with this or whatever. And then be like, man, we're hearing Zach Wilson in, and we had McShay on who, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think he's always a little careful about the, any Joe Douglas stuff. Cause they were teammates, yeah. uh, in college. So mm-hmm. he's never told me anything. You know, again, if he told me something off the air, I wouldn't share it here on the podcast, but I can say that he hasn't told me yeah. anything either about it, but it just felt like this. It, in early January, I was like, really? Whoa, that's kind of weird. And now it's it's weird to suggest anything different, even though McShay was telling me that when he talks to front offices, the evaluations on the four or five quarterbacks are all over the place, yeah. even though the mocks always seem to have Wilson penciled into the Jets. Yeah, and I think that there's a... So the three of them, I would tell you, Wilson... I've had a couple of people tell me they think Wilson's going second overall, um, You know, people in front offices. And I think that there's a lot about Wilson that's intriguing. Now, buckle up because this one's going to be a little wild, right? Like, he's a little skinny. He wasn't a captain, which is something that I'm sure is going to come up. The Connor Cook wasn't a captain. He was was not a captain, right? But that's one of those things, right? Like, he was not a captain. Like, and if you're the quarterback, like a returning starter at quarterback, like, it's obviously going to be a question, right? Am I wrong there? It's unheard of. I've done it with the NFL because one of my favorite things to laugh at is when, you know, somebody's doing the broadcast. You're like, well, you know, they, the locker room is bought in. They've made him a captain. You're like all 23. I think 23 teams have permanent permanent captains in the NFL, and it's 23 quarterbacks. And then the only ones that aren't permanent are weekly captains. And then I think there's one team that has no captains historically, right. like they've never had any. So becoming a captain as a quarterback, even as a rookie in the NFL, and then especially in college, like you're right, it's a really weird deal when you aren't because it's basically just handed to you as if you've actually done anything. I think Joe Burrow was a captain like three weeks in Cincinnati, right? <laughs> like, Preseason. He was, cap- he was a captain like right away in Cincinnati. No, but you, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel I feel like a little bit of a prick when I'll point out stuff on national broadcast because I've been on one with the NBA stuff lately. But yeah. you just be like, well, they made him a captain. So, you know that. Uh, and you're like, come on, man. So go yeah. ahead. I mean, I've heard he's a good like I've heard he's a good kid, but I, it's going to be asked. Like my point is, it's going to be asked. And so there's a lot of stuff with him where I don't think like 
publicly he's been dug into as much as Trey Lance or Justin Fields have. Um, now, Trey Lance is interesting to me because he was seen as a really high-end prospect coming into the year. And he played that one game and he didn't play very well. Yeah. And he hadn't thrown an interception like isn't like the entire year, year before, right? It was like yeah. 28 to nothing touchdown interception ratio. And he didn't look very good in that game. So how much stock do you put in that? But he's got I hope physical. not a ton because it's I mean, hey kid, you it's got a weird one spot. game. It's a weird spot, right? Like, can you imagine somebody telling you that? Like, hey, this is your NFL showcase, go play, you know? And you know you're not gonna get the senior bowl because he's not eligible for that because he's not a senior, all of that. So and then Fields, I'll tell you what, the inter- interesting thing about Fields, and uh, I'm saying this from an unbiased point of view because everybody Impossible. knows where I went to school. Um, <laughs> I did get like I have gotten a lot of a little bit of on fields where he looked really good his first year um, at Ohio State. And then he had like two or three real clunkers um, his junior year. And I had a, I've had a couple people bring up Justin Herbert to me and say, are we overexposed to him? Have we just built, did we just build him up for, you know, however long? And then all of a sudden you see a couple of cracks and you make a bigger deal out of it than you need to. And the Herbert comparison kind of, not that they're the same as players, but it's sort of, it carries over some. They're both sort of seen as raw, big arms, can really move, have some natural accuracy. So I, that's what's fascinating about these three, about Wilson, Fields, and Lance, is it's really, really easy to poke holes in any of them. And the question is, like, which problems you think are most fixable, right? Trevor Lawrence is like the perfect prospect. Take him out of the group. But the other three, like each of them, there's going to be holes poked in them. And I think for each of the teams, it's going to be, what do you feel most comfortable with? And part of that's the pre-draft process, which is going to be really weird and different this year. This episode is supported by State Farm. So look, a little rock hit your dude's windshield on the highway. And at first you're like, what is that? I'm like, oh, it's just a little mark. Nope. Now by the end of the ride, it's a big crack. And it had been a while. So. I check out the State Farm app. I go, hey, this is what happened. And the funny thing is, is I was like, do I want to go app first or do I call old school guy? Probably should call. It's like, let's check out the app. Not only did it take a minute to get done, they set up the glass replacement. They told me the estimate ahead of time, said, do you want to go ahead with it? And I was like, now I understand it's all in front of me, all done. I didn't even have to talk to anybody. That's how efficient the insurance game has become. But really, the only words you need to remember are, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, just like I did, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to somebody. The app was so good, I didn't even need to do that. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Learn more at statefarm.com. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side-by-side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect. 
somewhere in the Hotels.com app today. Speaking of the draft part of this, because we can bring it back to the Eagles a little bit, um, would you be surprised if if they took a quarterback at six? No, no. I, I would. Is, is that what you're hearing, or just yeah, based on I, I, common I think, sense? I think I think that I think they're I think they're going to give it. Um, I think they're going to give it a good look, and, and that doesn't mean they're taking one, but I think they're going to give it a good look. And I I think you're going to have like. I'd say everyone in the top 10 who has even a remote need for one is going to be doing this. Um, and it's, to me, it's a little bit like 2018. Like, and, and I know how closely you follow college football, but if you remember going into the 2018 draft, there was a real question, like, are there any great quarterback prospects in 19, right? Like, so mm-hmm. if you remember, it was Baker Mayfield, Josh Rose and Josh Allen um, and Sam Lamar. Darnold. Guys, 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 we don't, we know Lamar Jackson, guys we've known about forever. And then the next year, it was like, whoa, like there might not be anybody. And the result was three teams trading up into or within the top 10 to get Darnold, Allen, and Rosen. And so I think that for all the teams that are in the top 10, there's that sort of effect this year. I mean, Keaton Slovis from USC, JT Daniels from Georgia, maybe Spencer Rattler from... Just like there's not... I don't know if there's like a guy that you can look at now and say, that guy's going in the first round next year, right? So if you're the Eagles, I think you have to consider it. And I think the other, this is one of the reasons why they will. And I think other teams will. I think everybody in the top 10, again, who has a remote need for one will is if we don't do it now, what does next year look like? Yep, that's fair. But I, I would say that would, every time you do that, history will tell you, actually, that's not what happens. I mean, other yeah. than the EJ Manuel year where it was actually like, whoa, look at this huge although, void. Although in 19... You know the three quarterbacks who went in the first round were Kyler, Daniel Jones, Dwayne Haskins. I mean, we don't. Like, the jury's out on Jones. I think Kyler's kind of a beauty in the eye, in the, in the eye of the beholder, and Haskins. We know what happened with him. But I would I would say that there's always, you know, look, Trask could have finished the year maybe even being a first round grade. Mm-hmm. Mac Jones looks like he's going in the first round based on mocks. Who knows? Yeah. We could be surprised there. The way these guys put up numbers, man. And like the job was hard enough to evaluate first rounders. You know, the thing I always bring up 50% of them are straight up busts. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I don't know how to do it better. So I don't, I don't look at the GMs and go, Oh yeah, all these guys are idiots. It's just that hard, but there's going to be two or three guys that put up crazy numbers. Then we like their physical attributes. I mean, look at, Look at Burrow and who he was before his Heisman yeah, season. No, that's fair. And and then on the other side, we had Matt Barkley, who was a lock to go top ten, decides to go back to USC for another year. And what is he, fourth rounder? So yeah. the variance of who who we think a guy is year to year before they even play is all over the place. So I'm not disagreeing with the point. I'm just telling you history is more often is going to come up with a couple guys we're not even thinking of that put up massive numbers, and then There's- we all talk ourselves into them. There's no question that there's no question that probably happens, but can you count on it? You know, and I think no, that, that's fair. I think I think sub I think subconsciously with a lot of the decision makers, they do look at these things two years out, and like I can tell you, for example, like the Jets process when they took Darnold, and they wound up. I mean, they wound up being wrong on this, but you know, they they started to look in 2017 at the 18 quarterbacks and said, "Are we better off building for a year and waiting?" And that, of course, was Watson and Mahomes and, and Trubisky, and that's why a lot of the guys who were there then aren't there anymore. Right. But, but like, but they did look at like a two year mosaic. And I think that that's sort of part of the equation. So the Eagles to, to get back to the original thing, 
Um, you know, like I think Howie Roseman's always kind of been part of front offices that have overinvested in the quarterback position. If you look back, Andy Reid kept drafting quarterbacks when he had Donovan McNabb and he acquired Michael Vick and he had Kevin Cobb on the roster at the same time. And so I think that if they look at it, they'll keep doing like Like if they see somebody worth taking sixth overall, like I don't think that they would hesitate. The question is, you know, after going through the process, will they see somebody who's available to them that way? I always wonder if the recency of like some sort of story would be like, okay, well, we like Fields because people were off of Herbert. And Herbert just wasn't good in the second year. Now, Ducks fans right. will tell you there's a change in the staff that that changed him. I watched a lot of those games. And mm-hmm. I think at first, we're so enamored with guys. And then we start we start with a higher grade and almost everybody works their way down, yeah. <laughs> which is kind of the way we are with, with people. So Herbert, I always thought was more of like a personality thing because he just was so void of Quiet. any juice. You know, yeah. scouts would be like, I don't know, man. I don't know about that. Like, like a lot of the stuff. Never left Eugene. Like he'd be yeah. like, never left out, lived outside of like a 10 mile radius or something like that. Yeah. He sneaky had like some of the most, it wasn't a character flag thing with him. It was a personality flag. And I, I'd argue even Deshaun, it felt like maybe is, is guilty of this overexposure stuff you're talking about too, because mm-hmm. you, you, you look at those monstrous years and then he comes back and we expect you to be superhuman. And I remember, you know, part of it was like, oh, he, you know, he misses some of the easy stuff. You know, he's going to have to be more consistent. And then now you look at it and you go, yeah, except he also makes the most impossible plays maybe of anyone at the position right now. I mean, he's he's at another level of of guys of keeping stuff alive and it actually working out. Yeah. Well, shoot. Well, you could say the same thing about Trevor, right? Like the overexposure thing. Like he was getting this criticism as a sophomore, right? Like you remember like a soft, like his sophomore year, people forget this now because he bounced back junior year, but sophomore, his sophomore year, he's coming off of winning the national title as a true freshman. And I feel like for like five or six games there, there was like a little bit of a, there like, was what's wrong, a what's Dabble, wrong with Trevor narrative. Like Dabo went crazy. Cause I, yeah. I was looking up Dabo stuff recently for this other thing I was working on. And I got caught in this wormhole of him being asked about what's wrong with Trevor is his shoulder messed up. And then I think it was a throwing shoulder. Cause we know it's non-throwing. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do you think, by the way, as an urban guy, what do you, well, now that's actually a bad thing to say. I probably shouldn't, <laughs> I shouldn't say it to you that way. Albert. Um, what do you think of him as an NFL head coach? Um, I think he's, I think a lot's going to come down to his staff. Um, but I think like as a culture guy, um, I think he's got the right idea. I, I talked with him a couple times about this um, over the last year and a half. And, you know, one of the things that I think was most interesting is like he would talk to all of his alums, right? Like guys who played from at Florida, guys who played from at Ohio State. And he was like gathering information on like what works and what doesn't work in the NFL. And I thought what was the most interesting thing was he, he said like, like he's like, you tell me that this guy's a bad player. That guy's a bad player. I think you're full of shit. Like, like this guy, that's not a bad player. That guy's in the NFL. He's like, the difference isn't like this player or that player being a bad player. He's like, the difference is like this from player to player in the NFL. The difference is in the programs. The difference is in the kind of culture you have. And he's like, every single guy I talk to, you know, that's what they say. And he's like, and I thought it was interesting because he said, like, you know, he goes to his, he had a bunch of guys on the Saints at the time, you know, Lattimore and Mike Thomas and all those guys, Von Bell. And he goes, he goes, I go to the Saints. They can tell, I ask them what the culture is. They tell me exactly what it is. I go to somebody on another team. I ask them and it's like, coach, I don't even know what the culture here is. I have no clue what our program is. So he has like this deep belief that culture and program can make it work at the NFL level. Um, 
whether or not it does, we'll see. Because I, I just think, you know, like part of it when you're like as tough as somebody like he, he is and like, you know, like the Saban Belichick kind of old school way of coaching, you got to give guys results quick. You know what I mean? Like you have to, like you can't have it linger where you're four and 12, four and 12, because after a little while, it's going to start to wear them out, you know? And so I think so much of a key of the key, like with what, what's going to happen with Urban, I think is how quickly he can turn that place around and get results and get individual players playing really well. And a lot of that is going to be on his coordinators and his position coaches too. Um, but the culture part of it, I mean, I don't know if there's anybody outside of Nick Saban and Belichick that have been better in this sport at building a program than he has been over the last 20 years. You covered the Pats locally for a long time. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd imagine your perspective on this is better than most. And I don't know, you know what your ties are to because there, there's been a lot of turnover and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. But what do you think Bill's honest, like in the trust circle, his his feeling was not the press conference, Bill, but Brady <laughs> winning a Super Bowl and having Brady have this kind of year and Bill having this kind of year with arguably one of the worst seasons I've ever seen from a quarterback in Cam. What do you think his honest with his with his buddies, his vibe was after watching I'll give that? you a good I'll give you a good anecdote on that. It's about 10 years ago. Um, and even then, like there were questions how much longer is Bill gonna do it? And I had somebody who knows knows him really well say to me, I'm telling you, he wants to prove that he can do it without Brady. Okay. He wants to prove that this program isn't all Brady. So Whenever Brady leaves, tack a few years on, and that's when he's retiring. Like it, it won't be until he can prove that he can win beyond Brady. And you know, I just sort of filed that one away, and then I would ask different people, and some would say yes, and then others would be like, "I can't really deny that," but I never got a no on like that being like kind of the way that he thinks, you know. And so I'd imagine if your goal was I want to prove that it's not all Brady, and then the first year post Brady. You go seven and nine, and he wins the freaking Super Bowl. <laughs> I mean, I'd imagine that would burn you up a little bit. So, I think it's gonna. I, I think Bill is probably supremely, supremely motivated um, to show that his program was more than one player and more than just all the different things that Brady facilitated to for him over the last twenty years. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad Brady you know, early on here is, is winning the Bill Brady thing. Cause I, I think in a weird way, like it was, I was already pre pissed off about it. If Brady had gone eight and eight and missed the playoffs as if the previous 20 years didn't mean anything. Right. Cause as the player, you know, if you're going to take this slice of his, of his career and have it be at the end, that's not a fair representation. Like that doesn't admit all the other things that had happened, but it ended up playing out way worse for Bill. Yeah. Um, but Bill still has chances. Bill still has chances. And I'd imagine, you know, if he doesn't spend a million dollars on a quarterback, he'll probably put himself in a better position. What do you think they're going to do at quarterback? I, I, my guess right now, looking at the landscape would be, I would think like maybe a mid-level veteran that they can tread water with, um, and then see what happens in the draft. And, and I think they'll go through the paces with all the top guys in the draft. Um, you know, so like the name that I've sort of been throwing out there for the last month. And again, this is more educated guess than anything would be Marcus Mariota. Um, I do think that, you know, Josh feels like he could get maybe a little bit more out of him. He'd be a good deal financially for them. Um, and they wouldn't have to sell out. Like they still, 
you know, if you go and you trade for Carson Wentz, like the Colts probably aren't drafting a quarterback in the first round for the next two or three years. You're sort of taking yourself out of the quarterback market. So what I see the Patriots doing is maybe taking somebody who has some high-end potential, the same way Cam did last year, that doesn't completely take them out of, a running, out of the running for a quarterback over the next two or three years. A guy they can compete with, but maybe a guy that they don't need to invest that deeply in. So Mariota would be sort of an interesting answer there. And then, you know, I think that they're sort of lying in the weeds waiting to find whoever the next guy is. And I think we've seen too, Ryan, like, like the way they've operated, that doesn't necessarily have to be in the first round. Like they envisioned Jimmy Garoppolo being the next quarterback. They took him at the bottom of the second round. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think the most likely scenario is they find like Treadwater guy at quarterback and, you know, and maybe they can get more out of a Marcus Mariota. He was the second overall pick. Um, but at worst, he's a guy who maybe buys you some time to find the long-term answer. That's a bummer of an answer for Pat's fans. <laughs> yeah. By the yeah. way. I mean, but why you, you know think you're going to be able to... No, but why you would think you'd be able to figure it out differently than anybody else. I mean, as you know, when you talk to teams, and especially with some of the analytic push on this and some of the stuff I was talking about with the misses, that there are teams that believe, just keep drafting them. Just keep yeah. drafting them. Now, granted, when you draft one right after you just drafted another one, you're diminishing. But I, I think these teams know, you know, you know how players are. I loved asking those guys when you'd have them in the studio, be like, give me an example of somebody like day one. You're like, oh, shit, this guy sucks. And they're like, it yeah. happens all the time. And you'll kind of know. Now, yes, there are development stories and all that kind of different stuff. But um, to be on the opposite end of that, like we're going to find a way like Mariota's not the guy. He's just not. I, I, I don't yeah. I don't I, I don't I'd be shocked. He'd just be a little bit more expensive than Cam. I mean, so, Mariota's Mariota's problem yeah, I mean, Mariota is going to fool some people, can, can, can fool you too. You watch him and you're like, wow, he looks great. If you talk to the people in Tennessee, what they'll tell you is he just, he sort of lacks instincts to play the position conventionally. And like, if you try to play him conventionally, he'll play it really safe, check down, that sort of stuff. And you can play him the way they played him at Oregon, right? Like you can play him in like a college option style offense. The problem with that is if you do that, chances are he's getting hurt, you know? So like, that's the catch 22 is you can be successful with Marcus if you play him a certain way, but history has shown that if you play him that way, he'll wind up hurt. And, and that's, you know what? I mean, it's a great kind of metaphor for what that level of the market is, is when you're shopping in that neighborhood in like the 10 to $20 million a year neighborhood, like the Teddy Bridgewater neighborhood, like there's going to be some sort of strings attached. With Teddy, it was ceiling. With Mariota, it's injuries. And I think anybody, anybody that you're looking for at that level is going to have some sort of strings attached like those. Yeah, the thing with Mariota, I, I really think the people that know it can tell you, you, know, you can put up numbers with uh, predetermined throws, mm -hmm. you know, predetermined read, a little bit more hand-holding. Um, but the real special guys that sometimes don't even have better numbers, the, the guys at the top throw people open. They yeah. know they know how to calculate risk over the course of a game. Like this is a throw I stay away from here. This is a, a throw that I ignored. But now game clock situation, I have to make this throw now. And it was really revealing when Trubisky was in that playoff game against the Saints, where Romo's basically at the end of the game going, "Yep, well, you know, you got to start making some of these throws, man. You know, you're back there, yeah. and this is the score." And it was Romo telling you Trubisky's not good. Right. And numbers have confused, I think, us all from understanding who's really good and who is kind of propped up. And I, I think all of this 
like this is just my little rant here, but all the seven on seven and the wide open offenses and throw, yeah. throw, throw, and all this different stuff. Like we'll look at the arm strength and the physical stuff and a guy's release, and you're like, oh, that guy's awesome. That guy's awesome. That guy. The position is I have to make this throw now when I couldn't make it in the first quarter. And I think even the pros have a hard time with that. And I, yeah. I think that's kind of how the whole position has evolved here, at least my you know, it's I think it's like so much of it's just when things get muddy, you know, and there's not one way to like there's not one way to like that was like the limitations for golf, you know. Golf was, was what, the, the the example, the perfect example. And, and of everything that was I just what, talked about. And, right. and that was what frustrated Sean in in L.A. was like, okay, we can go to a certain point with him, but then when things go sideways, we're screwed, you know. And I can game it up, and I can continue to coach him a certain way, but you know, if if things aren't perfect, we're going to wind up getting the same result. And you see how Stafford played in those sorts of situations. For all the flaws Stafford has, he's great in those situations. You know what I mean? Like you can see what Sean saw on him. And so I'm with you. Like I think that like so much of it is what can a guy do when things aren't perfect? What can a guy do when he's not just following the coaching? Uh, Burrow is a great example of it. You know, like Burrow's not a Burrow doesn't run four three, like, but you know, he knows how to get himself out of trouble. He plays the game situation. Um, you know, obviously Mahomes and Brady are great at very, very different ways. Um, so I'm with you. Like, I think that's a, such an important trait. And, um, yeah, I mean, like it's, you see some of the guys like a Mariota, like a Goff who can't advance past the coaching. And, um, it's a huge, huge part of playing the position. No question about it. Goff's the best example. So I'm glad that you brought him up and, and we brought it up before. Like whenever I'd have Dale Ferrano, we just run through, Hey, where are guys at? You know, he, you could, you could see it pained him to say it. Because I think he liked Jared, and he would just be like, "Yeah, Goss probably the best example of that and hand holding um, that we were talking about a little bit there." By the way, um, I watched the Super Bowl again, mm-hmm. and we're going to sound like a couple guys that have been in the Northeast too long. As great as Mahomes is, and that Chiefs team, I, I remind everybody because people were trying to like, "Oh, you know, they're never really that good." And you're like, "Dude, they were seventeen and one if they <laughs> wanted to be." Okay. They'd won um, 25 of his of Mahomes' <laughs> last 26 starts. You know that? <laughs> there is no version of that game playing out the way it played out in the second half with Dante Scarnecchia. There is no way yeah. he would let that happen with the limitations at tackle in the second half. We're like, hey, we're just never really going to change it. And they actually did change their game plan a little bit when they ran it with success. Yeah. You know, if, the, if Brady doesn't get that late su- that touchdown at the half and you're thinking about, wait, they're still in this thing, but it it's one of those deals that you can't, understand unless you'd watch the Pats for this entire run is that you had all the faith in Belichick but you had incredible faith in Dante Scarnecchia the O-line coach who should be in the Hall of Fame who mm. just wasn't he'd be like okay hey we don't have it outside they've got us Tom let's figure this out and let's change this and it's just weird like it's not an anti-Mahomes thing but it it was weird to go wait this didn't happen with New England this stuff well, it was happen. also it was also like a like being married to the way that you play like it was like the ultimate and if you ever hear like, go, you can go back over 20 years of Belichick's press conferences and hear him say they do what they do. And that's a subtle insult to other teams. Like when he says that, like he's that, that, that like generally, he used to say that about the Steelers a lot. Like that generally means we got them. Like they do what they do. Right. And I felt like there was a little bit of that in the way the chiefs played. Right. Like, you know, I was talking to Todd Bowles, who's another Parcells guy um, about this the other day. And he just said to me, he's like, we were okay with them run, like taking three or four chunks in the running game as long as it wasn't 15 or 20. And hey, if Mahomes, you know, scrambles for 10 or 15 yards, at least it's not 60 or 70 down the field. So they were giving them the running game. They had six men in the box the whole game. 
they like they were spying Mahomes, but Mahomes could pick up yards when he wanted to. And, you know, it sort of felt to me like, and now we're both going to sound really old, but do you remember like Super Bowl 25 when the, when the, um, when the bills had to adjust and then Thurman Thomas wound up like 150 yards rushing. Yeah. It was that game, right? It was like, so like, why didn't the chiefs all right, start running the ball? Like, and it's just, they never did. And that would have done so much to a exploit what Tampa's throwing at them and B protect your quarterback, because if they got to start to defend the run now, all of a sudden, you know, you're talking about a different ball game up front. So I'm with you. I didn't think the chiefs adjusted very well. I love Todd Bowles. And I loved, I think I saw that number where they basically were like in third and long coverage more than half the time on first and second downs. Right. And that one adjustment was when they came out in the half and they started running and they were running, they were getting good chunks, but it was almost, it's just, it's just hard for like, we have Mahomes. Are we really going to do this? It felt like half-hearted too, didn't it? Like every time like you saw him, it's like, okay, like now they're going. And then they were like, all right, enough of this. And now they're in third and 13, like three plays later. You know what I mean? Like it was just like, it did, it it felt like they, their, their heart wasn't really into the idea of doing it that way. Yeah. You could check out my man, Albert Breer at Albert Breer. Very, very simple. Um, You're the best. Thanks, man. All right. Thanks, Ryan. This episode is brought to you by Modelo. Modelo knows it's not about whether you win or lose. It's about cheering louder, traveling further. It's about showing up no matter what. Because you are a fighter and Modelo is your reward. An ice-cold reward. Rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Modelo, the mark of a fighter. Shop delivery or pickup options near you at ordermodelo.com. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Imports, Chicago, Illinois. This episode of the Ryan Rosilla Podcast is brought to you by McDonald's. McDonald's French fries changed my life. They taught me to want. They taught me the taste of anticipation. There's no wrong way to eat a French fry from McDonald's. Unless you're eating my French fries. Get your favorite McDonald's fries today. You want details? Bye. I drive a Ferrari. 355 Cabriolet. What's up? I have a ridiculous house in the South Fork. I have every toy you can possibly imagine. And best of all, kids, I am liquid. So, now you know what's possible. Let me tell you what's required. All right, we got a couple good ones here. Um, Our first one here, traditional start. He wants to let us know he's 31, white, can still dunk. All right, good for you. Springs on this guy. I'm usually right around 190-ish. Are we going to get to any... uh, you got, I love that you're doing this, but everybody's doing it. And um, I, we had a guy who wrote an email, Kyle submitted it, and it went on for paragraphs, and it had nothing to do with anything. And then, like, the last question, he was like, hey, what would you what would you suggest for a portfolio? I'm like, first of all, you shouldn't listen to me. And second of all, like, what the hell was all the other stuff? You wrote, you wrote like, a book. It'd be like reading Moby Dick, and then at the end, it was a, it was a book about a time machine at the very <laughs> end. Um, don't steal that idea. Okay, so here we go. All right. Um, I think I find myself in a common dilemma for men my age. Maybe this can help uh, more than just me. My girlfriend and I have been dating for almost two years now. We're at the point in time where all of her friends are getting married and having babies. It's definitely giving her FOMO. That's fear of missing out for some of our, our other guys out there. And her biological clock is ticking away. She brings up the fact that she wants to get married and have babies all the time, especially after a few glasses of wine. 
Now, this is really annoying, but not so bad because I love her and I do want to start a family with her eventually. But not going to lie here, her consistent nagging and crying on the topic is kind of pushing me away. Part of my reservation on popping the question is because I just feel like marriage is kind of a weird religious tradition. I've never been to church. Oh, and I've never been to church. Why does the government need to be involved? (laughs) All right, Mel Gibson. Um, I get it. But it's 2021. I feel like we're past due to rethink this whole marriage thing because it's not working out for like 50% of the marriages anyway, right? Not to mention the fact that shit is expensive and we're in the middle of a pan. He says pandemic. (laughs) <laughs> Kyle, you use the phrase pandemic ever? No, no, but I appreciate it. Lightens it you up like it? Bit. Lightens it up All a right. little bit. Okay. All right. You know what? Yeah. Does the pandemic need a rebranding? <laughs> I don't know if that's been brought that's up a good yet. Good question. Okay. So I'm going to not judge the guy because he, I think his heart's in the right place here. All right. But I, I have an issue here. All right. So do I give her the Heisman, Ryan, on the topic until I'm ready? Or do I cave into my girlfriend's wishes, bite the bullet, give into societal norms and commit to the dad bod? Thanks. Okay. Yeah. Not anything crazy unique here, but let's just put it this way, guys. If you, like you said, you love her and you do want to start start a family with her eventually, then you have to do that. You know, I don't think it's crazy for women to kind of get on our cases about like, look, Let's start having the kids. And I'll tell you too, like the people that have had families, you know, which is pretty much everybody I know, uh, almost every one of them says, the only thing I regret about it is waiting, which always makes me feel great. But <laughs> you have to, you have to like factor that into it. Like I rarely, hear, I don't know that I've ever heard anybody say, you know, maybe the people that, but again, even generationally, people are getting started later and later. I, so I don't have like a lot of friends at 21, 22 immediately, you know, right out of college, married and having, having families. But we have a couple of guys in mid to late 20s that got it going and have kids. And, and now we're looking at, you know, teenagers that are in high school, which, you know, is, is normal for, for guys my age. Um, but they all, almost every one of them was like, you know, I'd, I'd rather had been a dad earlier, even if I wasn't in the best position. Um, because you know, life has a way of working itself out. I know this is going to sound like a total derailment here, but I was looking at a picture of Van Pelt and I, we were doing a show together and the picture's great, but in the moment I, I wasn't feeling it. There's all sorts of stuff going on and I was actually kind of miserable. And I looked at that picture and I go, everything that was going on in your head at that time, none of it mattered. None of it really mattered. And it all kind of worked out. And in a way it worked out even better than you ever thought it would. And so all the stuff, the baggage that you were dragging around with you every day and not talking to anybody about um, and you look at that picture and I know in the picture where my head was at, but I know that looking back on, it, I'm like, what a waste of time. And none of it really mattered. All that stuff that you were obsessed with, none of it mattered. None of it mattered. You're obsessing over, over and over again. So you being stressed about this, you're going to end up having kids with her and you're going to look back on this going, you know what? Maybe I shouldn't have been so ridiculous about the whole deal. Now, if you're not ready right now, I kind of get it, but that's the part where being a man can be really selfish because you know, biologically it's different for us. And if, if she wants to get this going and you love her and you want to have a family, you know, sometimes you have to give in, you know, not everything is just a straight up compromise. Like, all right, we're going to have kids, but we're not getting a marriage license. You know, like, look, man, most people do want to do it. I'm not even saying you're wrong. I'm not saying that marriage maybe isn't some completely outdated thing, but if you like her enough that you're admitting in the email that you want to start a family with her, um, pushing back on that when, you know, women have to worry about this more than we do, it can be a really selfish thing to do. And so if you were to spend more time with her and get more annoyed, and then you're, 
you decide to call the whole thing off, say, and that's not what you're saying here. Like if you're, if you can possibly think of it from a, a female perspective, it's like, wait, so I spent three or four years with this guy during these, these years of my life. And now, you know, I kind of have to start over again and we can sit there and go, oh my God, this girl's crazy or she's nuts. And trust me, like I've been through it where I still know I'm right, where I'm like, oh, that person I dated was a little difficult, uh, a little difficult to deal with. And you're not even in that, that boat at all. So I would, I would start to try to see her side of this a little bit more. Yes. I'm sure after a couple pinos, it gets annoying and you know, as guys, like I can do the same thing. It's like, all right, now you're annoying me. So now I definitely don't want to do this. And it doesn't even have to be about relationships. You can be like, now you're so annoying about this. Now I don't want to help you. Um, but this is different. Like there's a partnership here and you said you love her. You said you want to start a family really said, All right. So part of it, you're not loving. Um, it's a title. Okay. It's a title and a marriage license and, and the paperwork to make it all real. It's going to make her feel more comfortable and more committed. And yeah, I mean, you know, wedding's an incredible waste of money. It's in, <laughs> unbelievable, the markups. And, and honestly, like if I were starting over and young and getting married and people were going to spend 30, 50 grand on it, well, I'd be like, let's use that towards a house. And that's probably why I'm not married. So um, just try to think about her a little bit more on this one instead of you just being annoyed. Because you being annoyed is a far, far, like that burden is is far less than her worrying about, you know, is this guy all the way in? That's what she said. Nice. We get a ton of these. And I, I don't know, because usually it leads to asking for a job, which I can't get you. Um, but I'll, I'll do one of these now. All right. I'm sure you get these all the time. I'm dedicated to this and would love some advice on the topic. Uh, a couple of friends of myself are looking to the sports podcast world. We're all in Michigan. I'm sure you're aware, but sports gambling is now legal there. We've all been gambling since our late years of high school, 10-ish years ago. Wow, look at you guys. Couple Bronx Taylors over here, and have been chopping at the bit for it to finally become legal in Michigan. I know there are probably a bunch out there, but we'd really like to start a sports podcast. There are a few, yes, <laughs> uh, that's centered around sports gambling. I'm sure every group of guys has sat through and thought to themselves that they should work in sports. I really think with the unique backgrounds of the three of us and what we like to think is our expertise in certain sports, we could really be a triple threat. I know super cheesy, but it just fits. We have schedules that work pretty well where we can get together a couple nights a week to lay out our upcoming shows, but just don't want to know, um, but just don't know where we should really start. Any advice on the topic would be greatly appreciated. Hope all is going well with you and look forward to your response. All right. So we are going to respond to this one. So there's a million of these out there and I, you could say like, oh, you know, competitive wise, like I, I wish there weren't as many podcasts. I, it doesn't I, go for it. You know what I mean? Um, I would say what's kind of weird though, when you think back to like the days of who was on the air for talk shows, you would be one of the few people that had a sports talk show. Like even, you know, I made this comp when I talked to some kids that were graduating from school in Boston. And I was like, well, how many of you guys want to work at, at that time? It was really just EEI. And they were like, you know, half the room raised their hand and you go, well, think about it. Like even in Boston where it's this major, major market as sports crazy as any other city, you know, how many great on-air jobs are there? Are there 20 25. So there just wasn't any room. The math never made any sense to me. You get kids graduating from all over the country, thousands of journalism, communication degree majors. And now with the challenges in print and stuff, like the math just doesn't add up. And I don't say that to discourage anybody, but what is great now is our emailer says here, you just go ahead and start your own podcast. I think the key that you have to remember here is like, what are your goals, right? Are you doing this to be 
just do like this is an incredible thing to think like, hey, I'm going to get together with two of my friends and we're going to do a podcast and and we're good to go. Um, no one's going to listen to it, right? Like no one's going to listen to it for maybe the first couple of years and then maybe no one listens to it after that. And I'm not saying that to be a dick. I'm just going like you have to be realistic about what you're doing here, because what happens a lot is, you know, if you're starting off and you want to turn this into a career, you have to stand out in a really special way. When people ask me about ESPN, the only reason I got started is because availability. I'd like to think I had some skill that was pretty good for a 29, 30 year old at that time, but I got in the car and drove down there all the time. And that's not available to almost everybody that's listening to this. Okay. Cause at the very least I'd still had a few years under my belt on air at other places. And luckily enough, I was in Boston and it was convenient enough to drive down there. But when I would look at some of the other people that could come in from the outside and really crush, you know, Todd McShay started with this basic startup. It was him and he was the number two guy and they started breaking down tape on their own, two guys sharing a studio apartment. It was this guy that was much older than him and Todd was just good at breaking down tape and they started a company and then ESPN bought the company and that's how Todd's career started. Brad Edwards, who I traveled with for years, as big a college football guy as I've ever met, was one of the first people that ever really understood the BCS formula. So that was the value that he brought to ESPN. So he was researching. He was never going to be on the air. And then he would sit at home at night calculating how the BCS projections would work out. And he was kind of like the guy that figured it out before anybody else did. And then he would try to tell everybody what the hell he was talking about. <laughs> and people were like, wait, what? And then he ended up on air because he just, he knew it better than everybody else. So he figured out that one unique thing. I mean, I can keep going here. Um, Joe Lenardi, Bracketology, you know, he branded himself as the bracket guy, I believe, before anybody else did. If I'm forgetting someone else, that's fine. But ESPN went ahead and said, OK, go grab that guy. So that's what would happen with with a lot of the success stories. Now, there's the traditional go to Syracuse, go to market, whatever the fuck, go to market 40, go to market 20. And then, hey, I'm really good and I can be a guy here for a long time. And, you know, I, I mean, male or female here. I, when I say guides, it's a little general, but that can happen. Um, the analyst thing where we can't comp ourselves to any of that kind of stuff. Um, even Max Kellerman, who, you know, he found a way in. He was doing, I think, like a local access cable boxing show. And somebody, luckily, because he was in New York and somebody saw it in that market and they go, this guy's just, there's some energy about him. So whatever you think of Kellerman, like he came in from the outside and then all of a sudden he's doing Friday night fights and then they go, well, this guy can talk about anything. And, you know, he's had an incredible run and he, he left and came back. So you have to find a way if you're really going to pursue this. And so I'm not even talking to the podcaster just here because I don't know what your goal is to, to have fun with friends or if you really think this is going to be a career, because if you really think it's going to be a career, how many years can you go before it's actually feasible? Because the downside to having an opportunity is that everybody else has the same opportunity as you do. So it's hard to do, but you have to kind of figure out what's going to make you stand out. And unfortunately, the business rewards standing out in the look at me bullshit opinion stuff where I feel like that stuff always has an expiration date, I guess, except for a few people. Um, I would never want to do it that way. I just couldn't because I'd be lying to the audience. I'd be lying to myself. Not that I deserve some fucking medal for it. I just could never do it. And it's really hard to go, okay, what can I do here 
And first of all, you got to be good enough. I mean, there's also a chance the three of you just aren't going to be that good on the air. I mean, there's a chance, there's a really good chance one of the three is going to be bad at. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like first round quarterbacks, right? So again, none of this is to discourage you. It's just to be realistic about it. Because if this is supposed to be fun, this is awesome. Like, how great is that? How great is that that three buddies can get together and do this? But if you're doing it with the goal that you're going to be able to support a family or something like that long term, it is really, really crowded and you have to figure out, and this speaks to anyone, not just you emailing, you have to figure out what that lane is for you. Because now the hiring seems to be like, all right, do you have a ton of followers and do you have some video presence? Because I think they brought in like a couple basketball highlight people the last couple of years just because they had a following. And then next thing you know, they're doing on air content because their following was so massive. And then you have another guy who bought like 1.6 million fake followers and got a huge fucking contract out of it. And then when there was the purge, they were like, oh, I guess that guy didn't have that many followers. So um, there's ways in, but you got to stand out um, to have your podcast out there. And then the other thing, too, is like just to do it totally on your own. Um, it's tough. And also to do it, you know, without that platform, I needed ESPN at a time. You know, all of us that were coming from ESPN, even Bill needed ESPN. Um, Big Cat and, and PFT, they needed Barstool at some point. Rare is the person who can just say, I'm me and hit the record button and then people start to listen. And what's definitely happened more and more, and I can speak this firsthand, is that because everybody's doing a podcast, you'll do like seven episodes and then somebody goes, hey, do you just ring around about us? I'm going to go ahead and uh, save you some legwork here, but it's, it's probably going to be no. It's probably going to be no. So, you know, if the goal is to make this a career, you have to do a couple of years, get those thousands of hours in, learn the skill, listen to yourself, listen to yourself and go, would I want to listen to this? Because that's a hard thing to do when you listen to yourself and go, you know what? I'd probably turn this off by now. But, you know, and you also have to have this. There's also another part of it too, where you could listen and go, Hey, I'm awesome. And you're just bad at listening and you don't even know what you're doing. So, um, every young person that's starting up a podcast, be realistic about what's, I, I would never tell anyone they can't do something, but be realistic about how just flooded it is. Like I reached out to somebody the other day. He's like a big time guy who has nothing to do with sports. So he just knows that I, you know, I suck on Twitter. So I, I don't have that many followers, but enough that it's like, okay, this guy's been around for a while. And, um, I was like, hey, you know, would you want to jump on the podcast ever and talk about some of the stuff you're doing? He was like, dude, no way. Podcast invite. Like, do you want to come on my podcast is the new, you know, add me as a friend. It's it's almost now a joke among people when you add. And then you're like, well, yeah, but, you know, there's a decent amount of people listening to mine. So, you know, do you want, and it's like, oh, yeah, no, you get a podcast. Cool. You're like, yeah, I do actually. But so, you know, that part of it's kind of funny because it's evolved so much in such a short amount of time. So. Um, I hope I wasn't, I hope that wasn't negative. It was just, uh, the reality of, of what's in front of you. But again, if it's just you and your boys just want to hang out. Awesome. Great. Have fun with it. All right, let's jump into this one. Eyes wide open. All right. Hey Ryan, listener from the start of this pod. And while I know this isn't the type of show, I thought I'd share a recent experience to get your thoughts on a quick background. My wife and I were each married before, have kids from those marriages that we have half the time, including every other weekend. We were upper 30s, typical middle-class people. This past weekend, we went out with another couple for my birthday. Long story short, after a lot of tequila, we all ended up in bed together. That's not a movie, right? 
I'm sure it's a scene in a movie somewhere, but yeah, double checking. This isn't something any of us ever experienced or even discussed before, but now what? The next day, a short everyone good message was sent and all involves it. Yes. <laughs> what, uh, what's that thread going to be like in the next couple of weeks? Hey, have you guys seen this Cecil Hotel doc? Highly recommend. Oh, thanks for the heads up. Meant to check that out. Is it good? Yeah, it's good. Can you forward me that tapas recipe you were talking about? Okay, excellent. All right, so everyone said yes. Do we try to broach the subject or let it be? Are they wondering the same? Next time we all go out, will we think it's an invitation for that again? Where do we go from here and how do we go there? Thanks. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't have, uh, if this were my deal, I wouldn't admit it, but I can just tell you, honestly, this this is not my deal. Um, I don't know, pandemic, man, doesn't sound like there was six feet of distance there, but I just can't believe how awkward this is going to be from now on, unless this now becomes your lifestyle. And that my man is a hard left turn, you know? Because then I think you would get invited to all sorts of stuff. Like, I don't know if this pineapple thing in the front yard is real or not. I've heard about it. Um, I swear, I think everybody hears about this lifestyle. It's like Sasquatch, you know? I mean, look, some of you guys listening right now, you're like, no, it's a real thing. And that's, that's you know, that's cool. I'm not judging. But that relationship is forever different. Like, you understand that, right? Um, and the chances are, you know, as as you expand the the group dynamic, um, somebody's going to have a problem with somebody else. And then I guess there's all sorts of rules, you know, where I think a lot of these end up where like there's, there's a cross matching there, like in transition defense and basketball, you know, where somebody's like, I actually do kind of, I like this matchup better than the original matchup that I was assigned to when we tipped it up. <laughs> and now, uh, you know, then the other people are like, you're switching too much. So, yeah, I don't, I don't really have, um, I just, I think, you know, I think, you know, that this is going to be forever different. I think I'd worry more about the wife part of it. Cause what if she's like, yeah, that's actually my deal. And you're like, Whoa, maybe you're into it. I don't know. Maybe, maybe you just untap something in your late thirties where now you're fulfilled in a way that guys only see on showtime late. I just don't have much for you. Sorry. Kyle, do you have anything to add to that? Uh, I'm fine pulling up zero times on this podcast. I got, I got nothing. You're not a big orgy guy, then? Is that what you're telling us? Yeah, I just, I got nothing about to say about this one, and that's all I'll yeah. say about this one. Okay. Yeah, I think everybody's better off than that. I mean, this guy's just emailing. You're, you're on air. I have the podcast named after me, so yeah. But I, I'm just wondering if this is. I mean, look, obviously this isn't so far-fetched. It's not like it's Cure lyrics here. So, uh, yeah, I think we're good. Enjoy the weekend, everyone. Some will enjoy it more than others. <laughs>